Will you pray with me? Our Lord, we are grateful that you lead us. Thank you, Lord, for the gathering here on this Lord's Day, for your people, for those who lead us in worship, for the gift of music, and for hearts that desire to please you. Indeed, Lord, you have inhabited the praises of your people. And we pray that that will not cease even now, that you will lead us into your word, that you will even guide us into all truth, that you would give us unity in this way. This is our prayer then as we come to the scripture, as we get to do with hearts even full of anticipation, week after week after week. And so we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've looked forward even now to coming up here, and you can turn in your Bibles to Jude, uh, the text of Jude, and look forward to getting uh, once again a chance to preach as well, and once again a chance to come to God's Word. And we should have that same sense of anticipation every week as we get to come, and it's not so much the preacher behind the pulpit as it is the text on the pulpit, and that is what gives us consistency, and uh, the Lord makes His people like His Son by His Word through His Spirit, does He not? And so we're coming now to Jude. Uh, because we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible here at Kenwood. So here we go. We're going to preach through all of Jude. There you go. Uh, from the beginning and to the end. So what I want to do is, uh, is read through the entire letter. It's not terribly long, although it is a little bit interesting, very inflammatory at times. utilizes a little bit of insulting and uh, some of the insults towards the opponents, some extra canonical works and uh, sort of breaks down the high-minded separatist tendencies in the church. But other than that, it's very pleasant. So we'll read through it, and then I'll pray again, and we'll get started. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, being very eager to write to you our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, which is once for all to live with the saints. For admission has been secretly gained by some who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly persons who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you are once for all fully informed, that he who saved people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who do not believe. And the angels that did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling have been kept by him in eternal chains in the nether gloom until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise acted immorally and indulged in unnatural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these men in their dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce reviling judgment upon him, but said to him, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile whatever they do not understand. And by those things that they know by instinct, as irrational animals do, they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they boldly carouse together, looking after themselves, waterless clouds carried along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. 
It was of these also that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with his holy myriads to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness, which they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own passions, loudmouthed boasters, flattering people to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who set up divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And convince some who doubt. Save some by snatching them out of the fire. On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forever. Amen. Lord, I do pray that I will speak those words that are in line with your, with your scripture. I pray that where I have not included that which I ought to have, surprise me and let me marvel at your provision. Where I speak in what is unhelpful, may these your people hear all the better as we together read, mark, and inwardly digest your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, how someone takes a picture is... Uh, is a significant feature of their personality. There have been several studies have done, uh, done of this, even studies going back to portraiture and the like. If you look at George Washington's presidential photograph, or excuse me, of course, in this case, it's a painting, it's a, a portrait, it's a painting, and then go on to President Barack Obama's, for example. One of the main differences you'll see is that President Obama's smiling. And it's not altogether odd that he is. We smile. Whereas previously, it was thought that you should not show undue mirth. And, of course, with selfie sticks and Instagram and all the rest, we, we understand there is now a sort of standard way in which a person takes a picture. Maybe dancing around, having a friend, purposely looking a little bit goofy or interesting or awkward. This came out a little while ago. Uh, the blog, Petapixel, which is actually a, a blog and podcast of the, uh, of the photography community, ran a story because there were several such photos on Instagram, exactly what you'd expect maybe young people to be doing, uh, taking photos of themselves, or I mean, you know how Instagram, what is simply the pictures that someone happened to catch of us candidly during our lives, it's actually very, very staged, and you know, it looks just like this, and we're very careful. And Several of these were taken and tagged to the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. And if, if you've ever seen or, or known of the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin or the war to murder Jews in Europe, as it is known, it is a massive setup, acres of what are known as stele, large concrete sort of tables, if you like, some eight feet in the air, large rectangular pieces. Many have said that they're meant to look quite a lot like a graveyard. The designers say it's supposed, still supposed to be quite open to interpretation, as if there is no human rationale to it. But here were these folks taking pictures, having fun, using selfie sticks and handstands on top of these large concrete blocks in the space of the Holocaust Memorial. A particular uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish writer there called Shahak Shapira, he actually lives right 
right near the location in Berlin, started a project called YOLO Cost. You only live once, Y-O-L-O. In order to show what it was that was operating, what was so ghastly, what was so wrong about that, they're, they're just doing what seems normal. Any person using Instagram taking photos, that's just how we take them, that's how it works. They're doing what feels normal, but what he did then was to take out the background, to wipe out the background, leave the person in the pose, and then put a new background in place. And the new background was one of the historical photos from Auschwitz or Buchenwald or Dachau. And so you're seeing this person doing a silly handstand, dancing in a funny way on, on top of what was the, the stele, the large concrete block, doing some kind of a silly maneuver with a silly smile on, or making a duck face, or looking like some rough and tough dude. And then now behind them are perhaps thousands of bodies being buried in a mass grave. Perhaps some of the clothes that were taken before sent into the gas chamber. And all they had to do after, at this point was to, uh, was to tag him back in order to get him to pull it down, right? If they, if they saw what it was they were doing and they, they were focused enough where they said, oh, hold on, okay, yes, I see, and I, sh I shouldn't, certainly shouldn't have done this, and then tag him back, he would take them down. But this was what he did. And this is what Jude is doing. Jude is coming into a situation in a church where everyone feels like it's pretty normal. And he's taking the background, the background of Christ's cross, the background of his throne as he's seated in the session on high. He's putting the background of the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, this is ridiculous. This must end. Don't treat this in this way. Don't act in this way. Don't go back to these foolish or wrong beliefs or simply these foolish or wrong habits, as there are some among them who have quite literally slipped in, as he says, and have not been detected and have not been confronted. We begin in the first verse, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. The same problem then obtains as is now. The, who, who is this Jude? Who is this James? Right? The only ones prominent enough then are the only ones prominent enough now. James, the bishop of Jerusalem, the leader of that church. And Jude, his brother, whom we know as well would be the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In that way, there is no reason to doubt what the tradition is that comes down to us, and it is in one sense impossible to, because the only ones who would be known by simply these names and these titles would have to be prominent. They would have to be identifiable. Jude, therefore, is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. But like James in James 1, verse 1, Jude's not going to make much out of it. Jude is not going to set forth his authority on the basis of being kin, or at least half kin, with the Lord Jesus himself. We even think of the Lord Jesus saying, aren't these my brothers and sisters? And Jude has said, yes, I'm his brother, we're his brothers and sisters in the same way. You identify with Christ best by humbling yourself with your brothers and sisters in the church first. And of course, here we're not talking about the identifying or the identity issues sort of in the inward person of the heart in that sense. We're talking about how you would identify yourself with someone by, say, the clothes you wear, the attitude you have, that kind of thing. I mean, we, we can all sort of, you know, identify ourselves as really great basketball players by buying new sneakers and all the rest, but that's not going to translate into a nice jump shot. Um, I remember I first, it, I felt really foolish because when I first learned to ski after marrying my wife, who is a talent in the area and who's an instructor and all of her brothers are and everyone in the family is an instructor and there I am. 
I actually kind of looked like a pretty awesome skier because they had all this leftover equipment, which is very nice. So here I am in some nice ski equipment falling down the mountain. <laughs> when, you're, when, when you're identifying yourself in that sense, taking a practical step to say, this is who I am, you identify with Christ best by humbling yourself, identifying with your brothers and sisters first. How many of us want to identify with them second, maybe, or third? Want in some sense to speak of our, our godly heritage going back in the family or having grandfathers or great-grandfathers who are preachers or this or that, or maybe even ourselves, maybe make sure that someone knows that we know this or we know that or we're aware of this church history. If we've read that book, but just to call yourself, I'm a member of these men and women, of these people covenanted together. Jude's not going to go further than that. In fact, now he'll speak of them, of their mutual status. They are, verse, excuse me, 1b, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. It's not him. It's not them. It's not their work in particular. They are called. They are kept out. They are made a part of one another by God, by Christ. Of course, called appears in the New Testament here in this passive sense to those who are called. We are called out. We are called to life. The calling language over and over and over again throughout the New Testament speaks of those who are called from death to life. Those who begin their lives in Christ, who are beloved in that sense. This is a, an, important, an important piece of this letter. You will see verses 1 and 2 and then verses 24 and 25, almost a two-verse and two-verse mirror image, grounding 3, verse 23. So 3 through 23. Verses 3 through 23 are hard. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot we've got to do. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 24 and 25 show what has been done for us. Brothers and sisters here, if you are believing in Christ, you're called you're called from death to life. You are beloved. His love has been set on you. You didn't bring it in. You didn't perform well on certain dates. You haven't shown your value. You were beloved. He set it on you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The called continue in and are kept in Christ. Notice, may mercy, peace, and love. When mercy, peace, and love is to be multiplied to someone, this is what some would even call a third-person imperative. Like, may it be so. This ought to happen. Let it be. This will take place. Who's the one who's actually doing it? If mercy, peace, and love come, it is God's mercy. It is God's peace. It is his love. The same way that it was his calling and his beloved status that was granted to us. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The called continue in and are kept in Christ. Your calling, therefore, is highlighting his love and your glad service. It is what's necessary to undergird the two, to sustain both of them. The election by which God makes us beloved, then, is supporting our confidence and our identity. Our growth is not by some new strategy, some kind of man-centered one, though there will certainly be practical things to learn. The motivation, the engine, the motor continues. It is God's work in us. Even as we're then going to plunge in to verses 3 through 23, here's his foundation. Here is where he begins, as if one bookend, and we'll see it again in verses 24 and 25, the other bookend. I think, interestingly, of this idea that the called continue in our Captain Christ. Uh, recently, there was, uh, of course, some basketball games, as some of you may have noticed. Uh, after this, the, uh, the coach 
for the South Carolina Gamecocks, who happened to win their game, and no one, no one's been no one expected it. We've all been surprised, perhaps that kind of thing. He was interviewed, and it was actually a young boy uh, who was there in the press conference. Uh, Sports Illustrated for Kids, that magazine has young correspondents who get to ask the questions and be along there with all the other journalists. And, and the young boy said, what is more important when you're teaching defense? Their defense got them through their game in many ways. What's more important when you're teaching defense? The attitude that you get from the player or the technique that you teach the player? And the coach said, wow, that's, that's not a bad question. Good on you, man. That's a great, that's a great question. He thought and said, attitude. Attitude's got to come first. We got to teach the technique, but it's useless if they don't have the attitude to work to play defense. And, and here's a, a certain sense here with it's driving down again to that basic attitude of the one who's been beloved by God. And that brings us to verse three. Beloved, being very eager to write to you over common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, 3b certainly is a very famous line, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and rightly so. But notice that the first thing he's doing is he's softening the blow for the people to whom he's writing. Beloved, I love you as well. I, I was really eager. I wanted to write to our common salvation. It's tough to tell what might this exactly look like if you were to write of, of the common salvation in this way. Perhaps it would look a lot more like Second Peter. Uh, Second Peter, which is very much like Jude, uh, there are many common themes, even some exact uh, language that's used between the two. Maybe it would have expounded a little bit more in that way. I wanted to write this way, but I found it necessary to write that way. Trust Christ when you grow slowly or return and correct spiritual errors. H have you ever noticed that often when you're on a great upward path, there's something new happening in your life. You're feeling a fresh wind of the Spirit. You're seeing things happen, and, and, and certain ministries maybe are getting to go in, or, or you're doing really well in this area. You've, you've just been married, and, and, you're, and you're off to a, a good start, or whatever it might be, and then you begin to realize your, your confidence now is in your new pattern. You're starting, in a sense, to have spring in your step and confidence before the Lord, and, and you even feel a little bit bold in your prayer life, because of what's happening in your life, where our trust is then transferred to our growth, which is idolatry. Our trust then is no longer merely on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if now you have said, I entered into it by faith, but I'll stay in by faith and my new pattern of living, my new situation, my new works. Even then, when you grow slowly or you return and correct course spiritually, you, in a sense, are receiving a grace and mercy of the Lord to skewer the way in which you could transfer your trust to your growth. Give thanks to God for that. Trust, then, is the bedrock. Urgently maintain the main thing. Do you see, then, 3A and 3B, if you like, are working together, both verse 3A and 3B and point 3A and 3B. When we contend for the faith, which once for all delivered to the saints, when we are urgently maintaining the main thing as the main thing, we are returning again and again and again to ground our hope, ground our peace in the cross and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. A while ago, your pastors uh, needed to take a little bit of time for some good spiritual exercises and some unity together, uh, so we went to break out Louisville and uh, tried to break out 
and get out of the volcano island before it exploded and we all died there. Um, at one point it was even said, I wonder how many PhDs we have in the room. And boy, that would be embarrassing if, uh, if we failed this thing with all the brain power. But what's, what's interesting, of course, is actually it's not especially a situation that requires massive brain power. You're not splitting the atom, are you, when we are unlocking this and solving that riddle and getting this key and unlocking that. And it is instead a long-lasting string of basic good decisions, creative thinking, and judgments. And that's what you're doing here. When you're keeping the main thing the main thing, when you're relating everything back to the gospel, to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, you are keeping the main thing the main thing. You're recognizing that growth in Christ and that the passage of your spiritual life from that first day when the Lord called you to the last when he calls you home, it's a long string of a good decision after not something that requires a PhD, not something that requires you to be the pastor or to be some great commentator or interpreter or who requires that you have some massive spiritual insight. It is instead that you know the gospel. You know the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And you're able to hear every new thing and relate it back to that one thing and say, how does this expand? How does this clarify? How does this work for the gospel? According to plan, search out Christ's opponents. This then is where it becomes painful, where it becomes difficult. Verse 4, for admission has been secretly gained by some who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly persons who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which the letter is done. Verses 1 through 4 contain, as in a nutshell, as in a seed, everything, all the information, all the nutrients, everything that is necessary for the letter. Verses 5 through 23 now, in a sense, are going to expand on what this means. These people have gained admission. It says they've secretly gained admission. And in the Greek, it says that they've secretly gained admission. Um, it's actually a little bit surprising. It's a little bit shocking language here. They've crept in, you could say. There's like it's surreptitious or something. Like it's kind of like, oh, you know, it's a, we've got a double agent going on here and all this kind of an idea. You're almost imagining various murder mysteries or whatever it is. They came in unnoticed. How could it be that someone came in unnoticed? This is not normally the way this works. We don't have metal detectors here at the door. You know, we don't have people checking if you've got the right sign or symbol or something or, or checking your thumbprint or whatever it is here at Kenwood Baptist Church before you come in. How does identity theft, how does sneaking in work in this context? What they have done is they have ingratiated themselves in the community, and yet the community has not been careful to watch for the fact that there will be those who ingratiate themselves without truly being members of Christ. These people then pervert the grace, right? They use the grace. To pervert the grace of God into licentiousness means that you actually agree with it. You say that God is a gracious God. You believe probably many of these gospel basics, right? Yes, we affirm this. Yes, we affirm that. Absolutely. But then they put it to a different purpose. Not simply to say, yes, God's been gracious even by giving us his spirit, by producing in us the fruit of the spirit. But yeah, he's been gracious to us. Liberty allows us to be libertines. And so he is reminding them. Notice here where I say, according to plan, search out Christ's opponents. In one way, that's supposed to mean more than one thing, right? 
God's plan, their plan, your plan. In particular, this plan comes in with the idea of their designation. You could even say they were written down, you know, write me down for this much. They were designated, written down for this condemnation. According to the plan of the Lord, this is the kind of opposition that the Lord Jesus Christ would have after he'd accomplished his work, after he had returned to the Father, after he had sent the Spirit. These are the kind of opponents who would pervert his grace, and, and it's a frightful thing. Were, those were even designated for that condemnation, the designated opponents. Even just as it is said in Acts, that those were gathered in Jerusalem to do what was designated for them to do. Even as we know that Judas did what was designated of him to do, long ago they were designated for this condemnation. And now do you see, Jude himself is going to enter into a long period of reinforcing this, of trying to help us understand exactly what all this means. Because you'll see this point, blame resides with those who creep in and also with those who fail to notice. And this is the bigger issue as well. We read from the sons of Korah, and we'll see that a moment ago. Did you see how often Moses tried to bring to the attention of all the other people what the sons of Korah had done? When they had said, this is not enough, Moses, why do you have to rule over us in this way? Don't you know God speaks to all of us? And then God said, back away from them. Do not participate. It's easy for us to think, well, if they're really doing it that bad, God will certainly punish those who creep in, but not necessarily us. No, equally those who fail to notice. So we'll know them by their fruits as they downplay our only master and Lord. So he says now, Jude, verse 5, I I desire to remind you, though you're once for all fully informed, that he who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Here he makes belief, the sine qua non, the that without which you are not in God. And the angels that did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling, have been kept by him in eternal chains and nether gloom until the judgment of the great day, just as Second Peter also says. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise acted immorally and indulged on natural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You'll see here presumption in verse 5, position. Ingratitude with their rightful position, leaving their proper dwelling. And passion, verse 7, mark the deviance of false life and teaching. False life and teaching involves a kind of presumption, presuming that someone is in the right, presuming that someone can simply declare it to be so, which is clearly idolatry because there is only one who can declare something to be so. The position the very issue of leaving our place, not only the angels, he could have even referenced Genesis 3. The same thing happens here with we humans who rebel and passion, the unnatural desire, the unnatural lust. We should recognize here he does use that which is true of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was even a homosexual passion, but also we certainly have heterosexual passions. We have unending passions, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, which are always an inversion of God's good gift in creation. Presumption, position, and passion characterize this life of false teaching. And now we move to verse 8, by which I think he summarizes the point. Yet, over against what we've seen in the past, over against what has been clarified by the Lord, in a like way, these men in their dreamings, you could even translate that these dreamers, these ones dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile the glorious ones. 
There's even a sense in which it's the, the dreamers, the flesh, the body, they defile. Authority, they reject it. The glorious ones, the glorious things, glories, they revile it. This is the way in which someone is responding. And I have to ask you as well here who are, who are sitting in this room today, is that you? On the one hand, it's easy for a lot of us to say no. No, I'm certain it's not me. No, I wouldn't do that. But then again, when you sin with a high hand, when you hurt the ones, the worst that you love the most, when you ignore God's word, when you invert all of your priorities, when you use your reason and say something like, no, I, I know God wouldn't, you're rejecting the glorious things. You're rejecting that which is glorious. When you use your body for the opposite of what it was made for, whether it's through abuse or whether it's through uh, indulgence, each of these things would be the same kind of rejection and inversion that was characterized by the opponents in this church. Now, use reason, five. And I apologize, this should be 5A in the next 5B. Use reason to keep yourself the creature of a good creator. Much has been made of these two references. We'll see them in relatively quick succession. We see Micah, or the archangel Michael. This is from what's known as the Assumption of Moses. And then later on, we'll see Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam, from one Enoch. And it's significant here that I think what we would argue that Jude is doing is he is now entering into their own conversation. You might even think of what's happening there in 1 Corinthians. And, and what, 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 there are times when Paul says things like, well, you know, the food for the body and so on. He just enters right into someone else's conversation. You're kind of wondering, if I could only have the other side of this as well. If I could see the two sides of this telephone call. You might think of Acts 17 where Paul there uses the words of Adatus, the uh, philosopher, or when Epimenides, his words are used in Titus. Cretans are always uh, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is one of those places, it seems, then, when what Jude is doing is he is entering into their ideas, entering into their principles, entering into what the opponents are using for their purposes, which would namely be the assumption of Moses, an extra-canonical work, often when we refer to the Apocrypha and pseudepigrapha, we don't quite know exactly what we're referring to. Uh, this is more of a pseudepigrapha, uh, where it's applied to someone else. So this is actually, we often say very often, some of those books are uh, edifying. You know, they're not canonical, but they're, they're good reading sometimes. The Assumption of Moses, and especially the Book of Enoch, not as much. Uh, they're not going to be all that helpful. Um, you're not going to get a nice devotional time that way. So if you're a scholar and a nerd, like a few of us in the room, then you might enjoy them. Uh, and you might enjoy reading the original language. But other than that, don't worry about it too much. Uh, they're, they're not all that helpful, in fact, these ones. And so here you have it. He's going to enter into what they're saying, most likely appealing to the assumption of Moses, where we do see at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. He ceases to live. And then it just says, and he was buried. And this creates a lot of confusion, a lot of wondering. I remember being a little boy and reading that. And I was like seven or eight years old and went, who buried him? God did. God's the only agent around. This creates many, many writings in the time of the Second Temple, including the Assumption of Moses. And what he does then is he says, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, he, even he, even the archangel, who is at the front of, of hosts of other angels, he did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. 
do you see what's going on here? Is that those who are disrupting this church are perfectly fine with pronouncing reviling judgments. He doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. Well, he just hasn't been enlightened yet. Well, he hasn't studied this and he hasn't done that and simply proceed by reviling without clearly the heart of a teacher and without also saying, if we do end up in a difficult situation, if this matter is prolonged, we do know that the Lord will vindicate his people. The Lord will eventually war against those who are against him. The Lord will hold us fast. Instead, they're going to revile whatever they don't understand. Verse 10, these men revile whatever they don't understand by those things which they know by instinct as irrational animals do. They are destroyed. They then are corrupting their use of reason. The very thing that would distinguish us from the animals, they're corrupting it. They're, as it were, suppressing it until they know these things rather like an animalite with mere instinct left over. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. Each of these three used reason not to keep themselves in their proper position, not to hold back presumption, not to see that position, not to hold back their passions. They used them not to keep themselves as creatures of a good creator, but in some way to say, is God really good or am I really his creature? Each of these was using reason for that purpose. Cain, of course, why not bring this sacrifice? Why would this not be acceptable? Balaam's error, who, who is the on-again, off-again uh, prophet and cursor of the people, who even ends up fighting against his own donkey, and then perishing in Korah's rebellion. Don't you know, Moses, that God speaks to all of us? I tremble to think of how many people have firm religious axioms principles by which they live their lives that make perfect sense to them that are contrary to the scripture, that are quite literally an invention of reason, that are quite literally something that seems right to me. Well, do we have any reason to think that your mind is the key to the meaning of the universe? We think here of Matthew 21, verse 23, Jesus is, is confuting, he is contending with the Pharisees. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? It's a simple question. They discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? Right here is, see, I'm trying to move. I'm, I'm stuck here. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm coming around. It's, Denny told me I could kind of swing my hips around here, and I, um, it's just not, sorry. There we go. I'm coming out here. I'm going to miss it. This is the moment when they are going around, and they're, they're opening up, as it were, the back of their heads and pulling out all the plugs and saying, we're not going to use reason for what it was intended to use, but we're going to use reason to figure out how we're going to get through the situation. Let's apply our reason and think, how can we keep the power? How, how can we do it? What, what, what's, the, what's the crowd going to think about this? What, what about this? And so on. They are using a lot of reason. But they're using it exactly for what it's not intended. To avoid the truth, to avoid plain dealing, but on the one hand, it's almost impressive. If it hadn't been Jesus they were contending with, they probably would have stumped several of us. 
But then Jesus simply says, um, they say, from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said, oh, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And these can be multiplied time and again, as we find that Jesus' opponents use reason to avoid being the creature of a good creator, to avoid listening to him, to avoid, in a sense, even listening to themselves and the truth of the words that's coming to them. Here we have the opponents in Jude. They are intellectually inconsistent. The very texts to which they are appealing condemn them. They're intellectually inconsistent, and they're using reviling words to avoid the clear conclusions of reason. The use of the assumption of Moses seems aimed to uproot that particular suppression of the truth. Now he says in verse 12, these are blemishes on your love feasts as they boldly carouse together, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds carried along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. Now when we go down to our love feast, our potluck, you probably should not say, well, there's a waterless cloud driven along by the wind, you know. <laughs> what a fruitless tree in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Uh, but, but here's the difficulty, right? Quite similar to the way we act among one another. The, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a place of love, a place where brother and sister meet regardless of race, class, skin, color, whatever it is, because they have called out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness of sin. And in the context of openness and love, these persons are moving about so naturally, sowing seed here and there, saying this and that there, creating relational structures that end up bringing to themselves power. No doubt sometimes very, very consciously. No doubt sometimes almost unconsciously. By the power of persuasion and personality. Think about this fact here. I mean, I, I would illustrate it, but that's what Jude's doing, so let's not illustrate an illustration, I guess. He, he's trying to drive into the hearer's minds how awful this is, how backward it is. We must clearly identify such people. This is why they go together, 5A, 5B. You have to clearly identify such people. The reason Jude is identifying them in this way is because they're not identified in this way in the perception of the church in general. When they're going down to the love feast and having the potluck, we could rename it love feast, I guess. We could do that. When we go down for the love feast there, they are not generally knowing. These are the persons who are set about with quite an alternative vision of what our relationship in the church should be. And so he must reinforce it. Now he continues, It was of these also that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with his holy myriads to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness which they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You may have noticed, he likes the word ungodly. And, and that's somewhat the point. There no doubt is even a little bit of comedic relief here. They're ungodly, and they're ungodly ways, and this is ungodly, and so on and so forth. Now, First Enoch even uses ungodly over again, and I, I think even perhaps why he's drawn to this is because he's saying, these folks love to talk about how ungodly people are. Have they ever checked their godliness? Enoch is one of these books, actually, that has a, a very solid application. These people are elect. They are automatically righteous. God comes in their favor with his holy myriads, text you judgment on all. What's missing is atonement. What's missing is an inter, inter, someone who's interceding. What's missing is a Messiah in that scheme. 
And so he's using here the use of first Enoch seemed aimed to uh, aimed at the presumption of these righteous elect, those who perceive themselves already righteous, those who perceive themselves as elect, rather than those who are saying, I am only righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is entering into and using the appeal that his opponents would automatically have. Rather like if I were here today to say that you need to be on the right side of history, right? Uh, we could have a nice long conversation about what that moral idea means. You want to be on the right side of history. We could talk about Martin Luther King Jr. and the arc of history bending toward justice and all that. But, but, but you also could simply appeal to someone and say, hey, if, if you're going to speak all the time about saying you should be on the right side of history, well, what is history that you think should always turn out so well? Friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer and you're confident that you're going to be on the right side of history, why? What is history that you think would be such a thing that it always turns out in the way that your mind your reason says it should. Is that a right guide to how the flow of history will work? No, instead, at the end of history stands a judge. A judge who in Revelation 1 is, uh, has eyes like flames of fire. A judge who is powerful, but a very judge who comes and who opens the scroll, right? Who, who puts forth all of God's judgment for the end, but he is also the lamb who died in the place for his people. He's the judge who makes John in Revelation 1 fall down as though dead, but then puts his hand upon him. Friend, if you are here today and you're not a believer, I want to urge you. I want even to invite you, but more to summon you. Repent and believe the gospel. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Not for some way here where, where Christ has come along and you've used his name, you've added reason, you thought it should be this way. Not some sense in which you think you shall be vindicated. Automatically, you will be vindicated only in the Lord Jesus Christ. There we have it. These are grumblers, verse 16, malcontents, following their own passions, loudmouthed boasters, flattering people to gain advantage. We don't need insults, but we need a clear-eyed vision that that is who these people are. Verse 17, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who set up divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. There are people in the church who are worldly and devoid of the Spirit. I want to ask you today, is that, is that you? The gospel is so great that it is even offered to those who have presumed on God for a long time. The gospel is so great that those who had used for themselves wrong patterns of thinking, the gospel overcomes even those like Nicodemus who were among the Pharisees. There were some even who were called out from among them. And perhaps there's someone here today who says, I am that person where worldliness has had a purchase in your heart, even as you have worshipped week after week. But here as well is the other challenge of a sermon like this. The Lord Jesus does not break a tender wick. The Lord Jesus is gentle with you. And no doubt there are people in this room who, who are those of a very tender heart and who at the, very, the, at the very first sniff of sin can panic and can feel, I am so unworthy, I am clearly gone, I'm beyond his reach. Oh, it is not true. Even your reason there, even as you recognize the power of your sin correctly, don't use that as some other way of trumping the gospel. The gospel is for you. And as these people are devoid of the Spirit, we also can build ourselves up in the Spirit. Verse 20, but you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. 
And so if you're here today and you are, you are that person, don't worry. We're not trusting in whether or not you had a lot of sin or a little sin. We're not trusting in whether or not you can grow fast or grow slow. We're trusting that God has raised you from death to life and he put his spirit in you. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. And your brothers and sisters in the church will point out to you your life in the spirit. Yes, this failing. Yes, that. Let's take it to the Lord in prayer. Let's cover it again in his atonement. But thank God that his spirit is even bringing to you the softness of heart that would start this discussion, that would continue in this discussion, and end this discussion with confession, repentance, and forgiveness. And in this way, we convince some who doubt, save some by snatching them out of the fire, on others have mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Where it says convince some who doubt or, or uh, sort of win them, that kind of idea, doubt there is in particular that which has to do with the judgment. Judgment in the sense that we all must make. Are, are these people in the right or in the wrong? Do we listen to Jude or do we listen to these people? Save some, convince them who are doubting or wavering in which is right and which is wrong. In their own judgment. Patience. Save some by snatching them out of the fire. Isn't it precious that the New Testament, the letter of Jude, describes that there are going to be some who are so close to destruction? There are going to be people who look exactly like the kind of thing we would expect to be destroyed, but they were snatched out barely. You are not saved by great faith, by mighty faith, by powerful faith, by a massively influential spiritual faith. You're saved by faith. Just regular, plain faith. And then on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. You might think of Zechariah 3, with the high priest with his soiled garments. We know that the soiled garment is a clear indication of the stain of sin. Number six, instant harmony will soil your purity. Christ will keep you by the word and spirit. I even reach back there for the word and spirit, you see, that Jude has appealed now to the word in verse 17 and forward. His banner over this is the, the word of the, of the apostles, the word of the prophets and the apostles. And in the last day, this would be the case. With your trust in the word and being filled with the spirit and growing in the spirit, that is how Christ will keep you. But verse 23 is pushing back against the way in which we want, as it were, to get rich quick relationally. We want to fix it quick, relationally. We want a fast path to winning all people back, to saying, yes, he's a believer. Yes, we know that she's safe. Yes, we know it's this. On some, have mercy with fear. Because a short route to apostasy is relational harmony with those that the apostles predicted. The ones that the apostles said would come and do this, if our hearts are inappropriately drawn for relational harmony with them at all costs, we can quickly move to apostasy. We should say in one way, this certainly applies to many people in this room who are busy in ministry or are studying for ministry, but it's almost easy for us there. We get all lathered up, we read books, we think, oh yes, you know, and we're going to contend and go back and forth. But the harder thing is that conversation you didn't expect in a lunchroom at work. The harder conversation, dear sister, is the, uh, the coffee with your girlfriend, you didn't, you didn't expect that that was going to happen. Or that at this age, you would already have so many friends who had wavered. 
On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And with verses 3 to 23, giving us almost a weight, we recognize that on which we are standing. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish for the presence of his glory with rejoicing. You're not only clean, you're blemish-free. You're not only just in heaven, you're in his presence with glory. And not only are you there, there's rejoicing over you. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice how tight the connection is. I think it's even tighter in the original grammar. But you also see our Lord used there of Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. And here we actually see a Trinitarian picture in a letter so short as this, where the Spirit, the Son, and the Father have worked for the salvation of his people. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. They deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They pervert glory, right? The very things that have been at stake. To him be all these things before all time, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you will build in us confidence in Christ's work. That you will build in us a constancy in our own witness. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who are ready to sacrifice so much for the relationships of those we love and we want to know Jesus, but that we would never be content to satisfy Christ himself, the, the faith once for all delivered, that we would clearly draw our line, that we, would, that we would love it, that we would exult in it and offer Christ, save some even by snatching them out of the fire. I want to pray for those even in this room right now who might feel I'm so close to that fire. I, I need to be saved in that way. I need a snatching from Christ. I pray that you, will not, that you will not hold back, that your spirit will convict and move in their hearts. I pray that they would meet me at the back of the room, that they would turn to the person that, they, that, that invited them today, that they would find one of the pastors, that we would talk with them even now as we as a church confidently enjoy and confess with our actions the ordinance that the Lord Jesus gave to us. I pray that maybe some who are lost would for the first time confess with their words that Jesus was first given to them. And so I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.